we needed to live like the locals. We wanted to we wanted to integrate as much as possible. That was we felt like that was really the best way for them to learn about living there. And that's a little sneak preview of our episode today. We have the privilege of talking with Janet LaSole. She is the author of the book Adventure by Chicken Bus, an Unschooling Odyssey Through Central America. And I think last week on the podcast, as I was talking about the upcoming podcast, I may have said South America by accident, but it is indeed Central America. And so we're going to hear about Janet and her family's adventures, which involve also also riding on chicken buses, and you'll learn more about that. Canada Homeschools is sponsored by Canadian A Educational Resources, the home of Headphone History, and I wanted to thank all of you who purchased from Canadian A during the month of June. We were able to send a donation to help Indigenous families who have to travel for medical care, and we got a lovely uh, email in response to that with a little bit about how we're helping a family who uh, not only are facing a medical challenge they have to travel for, but their hometown is also being evacuated due to the forest fires that are happening right now. So thanks again for being able to help us with your purchases. And as I said, a percentage of those purchases went to help families in need. Let's get to our podcast. And we are going to divide this conversation into two episodes because it's quite a lengthy one. And I'll look forward to sharing it with you. Welcome to Canada Homeschools, the dose of inspiration and encouragement for Canadian homeschoolers. Canada Homeschools features interviews with homeschool group organizers, resource suppliers, and conversations with everyday homeschoolers just like you, all from a Canadian perspective. I'm your host, Rowan Atkinson. I'd like to thank you for joining me. Now let's get started. In 400 meters. In 100 meters. You have reached your destination. Welcome, Janet. Tell us about your family and your overall homeschooling journey. Okay, let's start at the beginning. <laughs> First of all, my kids are all grown up now. So I've been homeschooling. I homeschooled for pretty much 20 years. And I have two daughters. And uh, my husband and I are both teachers. And at the beginning, we were contemplating the education system just in general because we could see it from the inside and when the girls were really little preschoolers like toddlers we were going to all kinds of programs and we were uh, you know doing all the arts and crafts and going to the library and all the the fun stuff that you do with the toddlers and you know we were like that really typical family of four white picket fence kind of thing and then something really strange happened at the point where my oldest daughter 
became school age, I just, I couldn't bear to part with her. Uh, I didn't feel like the separation was, um, was timely for, you know, because of her age and how we were spending all this time together and having so much fun. And I could see them developing and, and being stimulated with the things that I was providing for them. So I said to my husband, what do you think about homeschooling? Like it wasn't just the, the homeschooling was just one aspect of it, but it was almost like I wanted to adopt a lifestyle of which homeschooling was one part. And the other main part was just that attachment parenting, just being around your children all the time and just nurturing them and um, having a, a family bond, creating a family bond with homeschooling at the center of it. And because we were both teachers, we both figured that we could do a good job, um, potentially even a better job, you know, depending on your perspective. But, but at the end of the day, we we could see what they were interested in and we could sort of see some certain skills and talents emerging. And I wanted to nurture that. And I did not want them to be in an environment where there was an imposed curriculum. I wanted to choose the curriculum or I wanted the girls to sort of lead me to what they wanted to learn. So we developed our own style as all homeschoolers do. Every homeschooling family has their own style. And so we decided to homeschool. We, we basically, we just never put the girls in school and we said, let's just take it year by year. And things were going great, especially when they were little. And so over the years, I sort of realized uh, that I was unschooling. So you have to remember my oldest daughter is 23 so 23 years ago or 20 years ago, unschooling wasn't as prominent a style as it is now. We know a lot more about it. The internet has a lot to do with that. But I realized over the years that that's what we were doing. And it just worked for us. It was, everything was going great. And that was the, that was the style that we selected. So as you know, most people do, they sort of contemplate homeschooling and we started out and people asked us, you know, over the years, are you going to continue? And I always said, we'll just take it year by year. And if we're still enjoying it, and even when my girls were teenagers, they'd never wanted to go to school. So I just honored that. And we kept going all the way till, I mean, they're out of the house now, but yeah, that was our homeschooling journey. Thank you. So I think we were homeschooling at about the same time we started. So our oldest is 25, turning 25. And so, yes, we, and so unschooling wasn't really an acceptable or known thing, or if it was, we had, because we were such traditional educators for the most part during those years in terms of the homeschooling movement to us, unschooling didn't, it didn't seem right somehow because we didn't really understand it as like a holistic lifestyle. And I know what you're talking about, about attachment parenting. We actually had an episode a few episodes ago on that very topic. And which is why um, a lot of people are homeschooling even now that uh, maybe it's more for that reason than um, it maybe initially was say 25 years ago when, when we were starting. So, yeah. So thanks for that. And I understand that travel has always been something that you've been passionate about even before you started a family. Can you share about your longtime love of travel with us? Perhaps when we're all locked down these days, we can live vicariously through you for a few minutes with you telling us some of the places that you've been. So the love of travel started with me like it starts with everybody. You take that first trip and then the world is just too interesting and then 
you can't stop. And it started uh, with me. It started as a teenager. I was very good in French in high school. I had the highest marks. And at the time, my dad was working as a, a teacher at college, at Humber College. And his boss was married to a French woman. And they spent every summer in France. So my dad approached them and said, I know you take a student over with you every summer. Would you consider taking my daughter? So he brokered this whole deal for me. And I went over and I acted as an au pair, which is the, the nanny for to their two children. So I spent the summer in France. But within that experience, within that summer, I ended up meeting some a young girl my age. She was part of the sort of broader family dynamic of the people I was babysitting for. And she lived down in the south of France in Toulon, which is the famous uh, city where Les Mis takes place. It was the famous uh, shipbuilding city where Jean Valjean was incarcerated. So she lived down there in French Riviera. It's absolutely beautiful. So she invited me down there and I went down and stayed with her for a couple of weeks. So I'm in the south of France as a 17-year-old girl. There's no 17-year-old girl on the planet that is not going to be enamored with travel when you spend part of the summer in the south of France. <laughs> so that was it for me. And it's the same with everybody who loves travel. It's sort of like that one first trip that you take and then the whole world cracks open like an egg. So um, I, that's what I did. I started, um, I went back to, I went back home to Canada. I entered university to take a degree in French linguistics. And after three years, I, I thought to myself, you know, studying from a textbook has its merits, I suppose, but I feel like learning the language in the country in which it is spoken is probably more efficient. And at the time I was also taking a minor in Spanish and I had an elective in Italian, like languages was my, I was such a geek for languages. So instead of going to fourth year university, I went over and did the whole backpacking thing through Europe, like a lot of young people do. And, but I also went down into Egypt and Morocco and did a little bit of Israel so the world was opening up slowly and slowly to me. And this is way back, way back. This is going to date me as, you know, seriously, but this was way back in the, um, in the eighties uh, when there was no internet and we were just using guidebooks and we were backpacking all around, but it absolutely blew my mind. So when I came back, long story short, went to teacher's college and met my husband. I said to him, um, because it was getting serious and there was talk of marriage I said, well, the ultimatum I gave him was, I will marry you as long as you go overseas and teach with me after we get married. And so he, what's he going to say? <laughs> he accepted my ultimatum. So we went and taught ESL in South Korea, and then we hit Australia and New Zealand. And so we did sort of that whole region because we were in that hemisphere. So when we came back, we did the whole white picket fence thing. And, you know, we weren't traveling very much because we were working. We had started a family. So it was reduced to weekend trips to see the grandparents. But at some point, we basically got into a lot of debt. And we sort of felt like our whole lives as unschoolers was going off the rails. We weren't spending a lot of time together because my husband was teaching, but then he had to pick up a night school contract because we had all this visa debt because the car kept breaking down, like all the things that happened in a family. We, there was nothing special that was happening to us. It was just, we just could not meet our expenses and I wasn't working. And that's one of the challenges with homeschooling, isn't it? Is you have to be very financially yes. creative. You have to be financially uh, you have to be strong emotionally to withstand the financial hits that you take. 
So my husband sort of approached me and said, I think you need to take at least a night school contract so that we can sort of get a handle on these expenses. So I did. But then he's working day school and night school. And now I'm working night school and we're homeschooling these kids. And the four of us were not spending a lot of time together, except for on the weekends. Like my husband wouldn't even see them because he would leave in the morning and he'd do night school and they were in bed by the time he got home. So we said, we need to make a drastic change. This is not working. And especially because our goals at the beginning were to create an atmosphere of attachment parenting. And you can't do that when you're actually physically separated from your children. Like the two ideas are, they don't match. So we sort of sat down one night and said, we need to really brainstorm how to solve this problem. And we had already, by this time we had been together for years and we had a, a practice where we would write down our goals and our objectives for the upcoming year or the next five years. And then we would give our goals to the other person because then that person could hold the other person accountable and say, well, I thought you said within this year, you were going to get this degree or, or whatever it is. So we sat down that night and we wrote down, uh, we went back to the system. Let's write down what means the most to us and what we want to do for the next year, the next five years, et cetera. Then we swapped the list. And each of us were shocked to discover that on each list, the same word was at the top, which was travel. And so my husband had done a lot of traveling even before he met me. I had done a ton of traveling and that was our desire. We wanted to get back to that. So the decision at that point was made to travel. And what followed was just the logistics to make that happen. And it was, oh, there was a lot that we had to do to make that happen. But once the decision was made, you sort of direct all of your energy and your resources into making that decision come true. So that's what we did. And at the end of the day, it ended up becoming an adventure by chicken bus through Central America. That's great. Thanks for sharing that story with us. I know homeschooling definitely is a financial sacrifice and I never planned to be an entrepreneur, actually, but I became one just because I was always trying to have businesses or jobs that I could work around my homeschooling because that was my main priority. Uh, but as you said, you know, when you're that busy, it kind of starts to miss the point of why we're homeschooling in the first place. And the kids don't feel super connected either. And, and they need both parents if they have two parents. So um, it sounds like a very wise kind of reevaluation. And you guys were living the life, right? As far as, you know, everyone's definition of successful, you know, you're both teachers, you have kids, as you said, the white picket fence, but sometimes it can be not all it's cracked up to be. And you have to make sacrifices no matter what, but sometimes the ones we're making are almost, I don't want to say the wrong ones because every family is so different, but sometimes it can be like that. And uh, it's really neat that you guys reevaluated. And I also think it's great how you ended up being very much on the same page as a couple in terms of what your priorities were. And in this case, it was travel. So you were homeschooling and you decided to pack up and travel across Central America, as you said, which often meant traveling by chicken bus. And you have an entire book that describes your travels called Adventure by Chicken Bus, which we will link in the show notes. Can you share a couple of your adventures with us as your family traveled across Central America? Sure. Well, there were so many adventures. Um, a lot of them are in the book, but I have two favorite adventures. 
So just to, if, if, if it's okay with you, could I just sort of briefly summarize what a chicken bus is? Because that sort of plays into the story. Yes, go ahead. And my husband has so, traveled in Africa and uh, I think they have very similar similar modes of transportation there. So I look forward to you describing that for us. Okay. So um, a chicken bus is, uh, it. first of all, it is not a derogatory term. Absolutely not. It's actually an affectionate term that we use to describe the discarded school buses from North America. So in North America, the school buses have a particular mileage that they have to reach before they're retired. I don't know what the mileage is, but they, they, you know, each school board decides after so many miles, this bus is no longer suitable for our students. So they actually sell them to Latin American countries, which is actually interesting on an ethical level, isn't it? They uh, drive them down through Canada, the United States and Mexico and into Central America. So the there are uh, seven or eight, oh gosh, I'm going to forget, seven or eight countries in Central America, and almost all of them use chicken buses as the main part of their public transportation system. Places like Panama and Costa Rica that have more financial resources than some of the other countries, such as Guatemala or Nicaragua, those countries like Panama and Costa Rica, they would not have chicken buses everywhere. They would have them primarily in the rural areas. In the busier areas, in the cities or on the main routes, they would have regular buses or coaches as we know them because they they can afford to purchase that for their citizens. The other countries do not have the same financial resources. In fact, Nicaragua is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere behind Haiti. And their financial resources are obviously very limited. So they will purchase these discarded school buses from our countries and when they arrive they refurbish them from top to bottom they're they're painted in these beautiful pastel colors there's a lot of religious imagery there's roof racks put on top of the vehicle and inside there's luggage racks they rip up the seats and they put them closer together uh, because typically the people that we saw were smaller in stature so they're able to fit more people and they uh, usually have real big speakers that they put over the driver and they're pumping out all this percussion this awesome latino music and like i said that the the uh, people of these regions would not necessarily have vehicles themselves so this is a lifeline for people especially in the remote areas to get back and forth to the major cities or to the markets or and they go everywhere we went to backwaters like you wouldn't even see them on a map so that so when we decided to pack up and go down to central america we traveled primarily by chicken bus because there was an objective to that when we decided when we were in this huge amount of debt and we went to our system where we wrote down what we wanted to do with our lives we decided that we wanted to travel so anyway there's a there was a whole series of events that occurred before we decided to go to Costa Rica but what we wanted to do once we selected the region we wanted to travel to we said okay this is going to be an opportunity for the girls to learn another language to learn about another culture to see what it's like to live in the developing world and because that was a primary objective the language the culture and you know, living directly with the people to learn what it was like to live like the locals. We needed to live like the locals. We wanted to, we wanted to integrate as much as possible. That was, we felt like that was really the best way 
for them to learn about living there. What is it like to live in Nicaragua unless you actually live among the people? And if the people travel by chicken bus, then we would too. I mean, sometimes it was very arduous. We were, it was very hot. It was extremely crowded. I mean, one foot only could touch the floor. But if that's the way they traveled, then we would too. So if this flows into some of the stories that you asked me to share, in one particular case, we were trying to find a monkey sanctuary. We did a lot of biology because if you, we weren't great at science, my husband and I, because we weren't science teachers. So we're like, great, there's rainforest and there's all kinds of jungle hiking and where we did turtle conservation and we were just going to blitz the science when we were down there. So we were looking for this monkey sanctuary that was absolutely nowhere to be found and we, it ended up we had to take a vegetable truck so we went to this really remote village uh on the panama costa rica border and the only way to get to the monkey sanctuary was taking a vegetable truck that left the village and it left the village with all the ladies that had their produce and a few indigenous families and they lived way in the sticks in this in these backwaters there was no public like not even a chicken bus could get to these places and there was actually no roads so when we found out we had to take the vegetable truck we hopped on the vegetable truck with the ladies and there was kids and all kinds of people it went down the road a little bit, but then the road ended. So it had to go down an embankment and then it went along the beach. So the thoroughfare to this particular monkey sanctuary was on the beach. And the, the truck only left twice a day because it had to time the tide. It couldn't obviously go out when it was high tide. So we went to this monkey sanctuary. It was in the middle of the jungle. And there was an um, an older American fellow who had purchased the land from a pig farmer who had retired and this American guy was like trying to bring the land back to its natural state and because he was doing that there was a troop of monkeys many troops of different species of monkey that would pass overhead every day in early in the morning and gather up all the fruit from all the trees he had planted and you just you were just around dozens and dozens of monkeys all day every day so it was absolutely fascinating. That part was fascinating, but also getting there on a vegetable truck and coming back on a vegetable truck where you have like huge sacks of avocados, you've got indigenous families back in there, like up in the jungle. And my husband was actually riding outside the vegetable truck because it was so crowded. It was a, a framed truck. So he was clinging to the frame of the truck like a firefighter, how they hang on to those handles on the outside of the fire truck that he told me it was so crowded that he only had room on the bumper for one of his feet and I couldn't see any of this because I was stuck inside the truck with my kids and dozens of people so that was that was a story and a half right there that was actually thinking back I don't know what we were thinking taking two young children to this remote place but nevertheless that was one crazy story and then there was another I'll tell this one this one I won't speak as much about this one but at one point after a year all our clothes were falling apart we didn't have a lot of money so we were trying to live on a limited income because the people there lived on a limited income and we were trying to replicate their lifestyle but at some point we needed to buy new underwear because everything was falling apart so when I went to the market I 
bought everyone some underwear, but there was no women's underwear unless they were thongs. And I just wasn't going to do that. It was too hot. It didn't feel comfortable. So I was reduced to actually buying men's underwear. Yes, I have gone on record publicly stating that I have, I wore men's underwear. It's in the book. So I might as well just tell everybody. So those are the things that you just sort of try to adapt. And, you know, this was, it was just all in a day's work down there, (laughs) just trying to adapt to things like that. It really puts into perspective all the things that we take for granted, like roads, underwear. <laughs> it does, yeah. So how do you think this trip impacted your children? Do you think that your family did learn the things that you intended? And also, what are some things you personally learned that you did not expect to learn? So I think that's a few questions. I'll start with the first one again. How do you think this trip impacted your children? And we're going to leave the first half of the chicken bus adventures there. And I'll leave you wondering, how did that kind of travel and homeschooling experience affect Janet and her partner's children. And we're about halfway through. So we'll look forward to seeing you next week. And we'll find out the answers to those questions and so much more. Happy homeschooling, Canada. Thank you so much for listening. You can find helpful links and show notes for this episode at our website, canadahomeschools.com. Please share this podcast with your friends and leave a rating and positive review on your podcast provider. This will help others find their dose of inspiration and encouragement. Happy homeschooling, Canada! Hee <laughs> hee!